Due to the nature of this episode, a listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, gun violence, drug abuse, and alcoholism. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. Another note before we begin, while we usually present a straightforward story, this case has some legal complexities, so you'll occasionally hear us pausing the story to clarify key facts. The sun was just rising as a group of around 20 people were shuttled into the Stockholm police precinct. They were all sympathizers of a Kurdish rebel group called the PKK, and according to the commissioner, they all knew something about the prime minister's assassination. Grave-faced detectives sat across from the group in cold metal chairs. They asked increasingly frantic, accusatory questions Sometimes it didn't even seem like the authorities cared how the PKK members responded. The officers knew the organization was designated a terrorist group, and the PKK had taken out high-profile enemies before. Their previous executions resembled Olaf Palma's murder, a quick shot to the back and a runaway hitman. Now, after six months of intense research and surveillance, the detectives were confident the PKK killed the prime minister. They just needed confirmation from the organization's foot soldiers. But that confirmation never came. None of the suspects recognized the details of the murder, and many looked totally confused. Over and over, all they could say was, I don't know. Eventually, the authorities realized They'd made a terrible mistake. The men clearly didn't know anything. Six months of hard work down the drain. And unfortunately, it wouldn't be the last time the Palma task force missed the mark. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palme. Last week, we learned about his sudden assassination on the streets of Stockholm and followed the police as they struggled to launch an investigation. This week, the authorities finally zero in on a suspect. But the trial surprise conclusion throws the entire nation for a loop. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hans Holmier's star was on the rise in early 1987. He was Stockholm's police commissioner 
and the man charged with investigating Olaf Palma's assassination. One publication called him Sweden's Man of the Year, and another one added him to a list of the 10 sexiest men in the country. Popular would be an understatement. But that was before he ordered the raid on a group of Kurdish rebels on January 20th, 1987, and before the raid completely blew up in his face. Holmir had spent the last six months convinced that the PKK was behind Olaf Palma's murder and seemingly ignored any other leads. Then, just hours after the mass arrest, he realized that none of the Kurdish people made viable suspects. They were all released from custody by mid-afternoon. About 10 hours after the raid, Holmir faced 250 members of the press. He'd spent the last few months promising them a suspect was coming soon. Now he sheepishly admitted he was wrong. The investigation was back at square one. And in the eyes of the public, it was all his fault. When the press conference wrapped, Holmir and his chief prosecutor hurried back to their offices. They had no idea where to go next. The prosecutor said as much to a New York Times reporter who was following close behind him. Do you know who killed Olaf Palma? We haven't the faintest idea. Do you know what kind of person did it? No. Do you know where he came from? No. Do you know why he did it? No, the answer to all these questions is no. That's where the Palma investigation was at the beginning of 1987. Adrift in a sea of no's. No suspect, no motive, no progress. And soon enough, no leader. After the debacle, Hans Holmier's reputation took a nosedive. He went from a national hero to the country's laughingstock. Once it was clear the investigation had crashed and burned, even government officials turned on Hans Holmier. He resigned in March of 1987. From there, the investigation became a bureaucratic mess. Several government groups tried to launch their own inquiries, but none found anything worthwhile. It wasn't until 1988 that the case came back to life. The police task force had a new leader, a detective named Hans Olvebru. He was a logical, systematic thinker with actual experience in the field, unlike his predecessors. Remember, the previous investigative leads were politicians, not detectives. So, Olvebru had two clear missions. First, to restore order to the investigation. Hans Holmier had left it in disarray, literally. His notes and files weren't cataloged correctly. Olvebru's team had to completely reorganize them before they could take any other steps. Once the files were sorted out, Olvebru needed to find a suspect. Not a group, not a theory someone who actually matched the description of the gunman and was near the Grand Cinema on the night of the murder. Of course, this was easier said than done. The killer's description had been muddled since the beginning, and the pool of potential suspects was huge. 
Stockholm was a bustling city. Thousands of people were downtown at any given moment. All Olvebru could do was try to narrow it down. He didn't know much about the suspect, but the man obviously knew how to handle a gun. Olvebru believed this meant he'd killed before, or was at least comfortable around weapons. His team ran through a massive list of people in the area that night, looking for repeat offenders and hardened criminals. As we mentioned in the last episode, Olaf Palma was killed on a street called the Svea Vegan, which featured a few seedy clubs and bars. There were plenty of shady characters around, and many had easy access to guns. The Palma task force soon became interested in one bar called Oxen, operated by a drug dealer named Siga Cedargrin. And in return, Cedargrin became interested in them. You see, Cedargrin had a reputation with the Stockholm police. He was a full-time criminal with multiple convictions under his belt and a habit of snitching on other underworld figures. In February of 1988, it seemed like he'd found a new target. Cedargrin contacted a detective named Tura Nassen and asked for a meeting. He had some intel to deliver, and he hinted that it had to do with the Palma murder. Tura, long time no see. It's hard to speak freely with the guards breathing down my neck. Now that I'm out, I can stretch out my legs and let you know what's really on my mind. Get to it, Sega. Right. How much do you know about this whole Palma thing? The basics. Out with his wife and son at the movie theater. Good, good. So, you remember Morton Palma's story. He saw a nervous-looking man outside the Grand Cinema who maybe followed the parents down the Sveavagen. Little scruffy with a blue coat. Yes, the Grand Man, right? Precisely. And from what I've heard, you all are still looking into him, right? Think he might be the gunman? That's classified. If you have any names you'd like to offer up... <sighs> Don't be coy, Tora. But I'll play along. Do you remember my old associate? The Bayonet Killer? Nossen almost certainly recognized the name. The Bayonet Killer, a.k.a. Kreister Pedershone. A quick note. While Kreister Pedershone was undeniably a criminal, he always maintained he was innocent of the murder of Olaf Palma. Kreister first made headlines in 1970. He'd stabbed a man with a sharpened bayonet in broad daylight right in the middle of Stockholm. The bayonet killer was in his early 20s at the time and deeply embedded in the city's criminal circles. Though he was sent to a psychiatric facility after the killing, he showed no interest in reform. Instead, Kreister used his fearsome status as the bayonet killer to move up the ranks in the Stockholm underworld. He became an intimidating bodyguard for other criminals and attacked at least seven more people between 1970 and 1988. He racked up a few theft charges as well. But according to Siga Cedargrin, something else might be added to his rap sheet. He looks like the Grand Man, no? Maybe. He's a bit taller than Morton described. 
and I'm not sure why he'd want to kill. Oh, I'm not saying he killed anyone. I'm saying he could be the man outside the theater. But if we think the man outside the theater was the gunman, then... Then that's your connection to make, Mr. Policeman. I'm just saying that Christer Pettershone looks like the Grand Man. And I'm saying that he's violent, capable of anything. That's all. Wow. Does it hurt to talk out of both sides of your mouth like that? Just give me one straight answer before you go. Do you know if Creaster could have gotten a revolver around February 1986? They're pretty sure Palma was killed with a 357 Magnum. Oh yes. I had a ton of weapons over in my apartment and he was there all the time. Tura Nasa knew Cedargren was not trustworthy. The drug dealer refused to directly implicate anyone, suggesting that he had some kind of ulterior motive. Still, the memory of Kreister Pettershone got the officer's mind racing. Kreister seemed like a decent suspect. He clearly had a history of violence and easy access to weapons. Since he was a frequent customer at Oxen, he definitely could have been in the right place at the time of the murder. Nassen passed his theory up the chain, and as it turned out, this wasn't the first time Kreister had been screened as a suspect. Multiple people had called to say he was suspicious. He'd even been officially questioned already. While this new lead around Kreister was exciting, the detectives weren't ready to arrest him quite yet. There were a few things that still didn't add up. Number one, Priester Pettershone didn't have any reason to kill Olaf Palma. He actually looked up to the prime minister and agreed with him politically. He could have accidentally targeted him, but that didn't make any sense either. All of Priester's previous offenses were spur of the moment, driven by rage. Everyone who saw the gunman said he approached calmly and deliberately, which was not Priester's M.O., and number two, Kreister had already given the police a solid alibi that proved he wasn't in downtown Stockholm at the time of the murder. He said he'd been at Oxen earlier that evening, but had gotten on a train to a suburb around 10 p.m. His friend, Ulf Spinarsch, was staying with him at the time and confirmed that he came home at 11.30, just nine minutes after Olaf Palma was shot. At the time, the detectives took the house guest at his word and crossed Kreister's name off the suspect list. But Nassen and his colleagues thought his case merited a second look. First, they had to check if Ulf Spinarge was lying. See, Ulf was another frequent criminal and was in prison himself during the spring of 1988. So a group of Stockholm police visited him to hear his story one more time. It's hard to figure out what exactly happened at this meeting. In his book, Blood on the Snow, Jan Bundesen says the officers gave the prisoner a few gifts and asked him to recall the events of February 28th. The inmate insisted that Kreister came home between 11 and midnight at first, which meant he couldn't have ambushed Palma at 11.21. But after several rounds of questioning, his story changed. In the new version, he claimed Kreister came home after midnight, around 12.30. 
If that was true, he would have had ample time to escape the crime scene. But based on the facts Bundesen provides, it sounds like the officers may have bribed the prisoner and repeated their questions until he gave a satisfactory answer, one that implicated Kreister Pedershoen. It seemed suspect. No one had seemed to stop and consider that at the time, though. The department had been in a dry spell for two years. They were probably a bit desperate to find Olaf Palma's murderer. Kreister wasn't a perfect suspect, but he was closer than they'd ever come before. So they chose to pursue him no matter what. Coming up, the Palma Task Force finally brings someone to trial. 60 years after the release of their first studio album, the Beatles fan base has never been greater or more curious. Hi, it's Carter. Right now on Conspiracy Theories, dive into the magical mystery surrounding the Fab Four in a three-part special called Beatlemania. Sex, drugs, death, and more death. The history of the Beatles and their Fab fandom is rife with conjecture. And we're taking on the hits. Was Paul replaced by a lookalike? Did Yoko incite the band's demise? And are there really any hidden messages in their lyrics? So many conspiracies, so little time. Before Swifties, before the Beehive, there was Beatlemania. Catch this three-part special now by following the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. And now, back to our story. Priester Pettershone was the prime suspect for Olaf Palma's murder. Well, at least he looked the part. He had wild, dark eyes and a face that had been ravaged by years of hard living. He seemed downright villainous, and his reputation as the bayonet killer only added to the effect. The police probably knew they would have no trouble convincing a jury that he murdered the prime minister. Now, at the time, there were ample rumors circulating about Kreister. We won't repeat them, but the important things to note are that one, they weren't flattering, and two, investigators believed them. The police put 41-year-old Kreister Pedershon under heavy surveillance in the fall of 1988 and noticed that he brought up the assassination all the time. So they detained Kreister on December 14, 1988, and searched his apartment. But to press charges, the authorities needed to prove he was actually in the area during the assassination. Remember, Kreister's friend, Ulf Spinarsch, had changed his story in prison. While he'd first corroborated Kreister's alibi, he now claimed Kreister was definitely out of the house at the time of the murder and came home around 12.30. The investigators might have hoped that Kreister would change his story too, but he stuck to his alibi. Based on what Kreister said, we imagine the conversation went like this. <sighs> I'm so tired of talking about this, but here it goes. I took the train into Stockholm in the late afternoon. I said goodbye to Ulf on the way out. I lost my house keys, so I wanted him to stay there and make sure no one broke in. Mm, that's awfully convenient. It's the truth. 
I don't like burglars. Oh, right. Murderers are much more noble. Anyway, I got to the central station and walked to the Oxen Club to buy some uppers from Sige. Then I hung out with him and his girlfriend for a while. She brought out the vodka, and I had a little too much. You sure do remember a lot from that night. It was almost three years ago. You asked me to tell you everything. I asked you to tell me the truth, not some song and dance routine you've been working on this whole time. It's not. <laughs> Let me finish. I drank about a pint of vodka and knew it was time to go. Got on the train to Rotobro and fell asleep. Finally got home around midnight. When I woke up the next morning, the Prime Minister was dead. That enough. Nothing Creaster said could dissuade detectives. They believed he was the killer. In fact, they'd already invited witnesses to pick him out of a lineup. Creaster was ordered to stand among 11 Stockholm policemen who were roughly the same height and age. Two witnesses from the Grand Cinema were brought in. Both of them recognized him as the man outside the theater, the one who might have followed Palma home. But only one person could really say if Creaster was the killer, Olaf Palma's wife, Lisbeth. She'd gotten the closest look at the gunman. Her memory was the last piece of the puzzle. Unfortunately, Lisbeth was not on good terms with the police. She felt like they didn't respect her and had cut off almost all contact by that point. She refused to participate in the day-to-day -day workings of the investigation. It was too emotionally painful. But the task force did their best to stay on her good side, providing her with regular updates on the case. Most recently, one of the top prosecutors told her the detectives were looking into an alcoholic man who lived in a rough suburb. This was presumably Creaster, though they didn't reveal his name at the time. It seemed like the detectives didn't realize she'd been given this information already because they then asked her to pick a suspect out of the lineup. Sure enough, after scanning the 12 faces, she exclaimed, Well, it's evident who is the alcoholic. Number eight. Number eight was Priester Pettershone. After Lisbeth picked him out, he was immediately charged with Olaf Palma's murder. To Hans Olvebru and his department, it probably felt like a major victory. But once again, they moved too quickly. They gave Lisbeth a rough description of Priester before showing her the lineup. And she never said Priester looked like the killer. She said he matched the description she'd already been given. He looked like an alcoholic. Somehow, though, this was enough for the desperate investigators. They probably knew the case against Creaster Pettershone was weak, but once the media caught on to the story, the tide turned in their favor. When his trial began in June of 1989, it felt like the verdict had already been decided. The press and public were unified against him. Creaster insisted that he was innocent and gave the same story about his whereabouts on the night of the murder. But no one, not even Siga Cedargren, could corroborate it. 
Things looked even worse for him after the prosecution brought in the witnesses who claimed to see him outside the Grand Cinema staring at Olaf Palma. When Lisbeth Palma was called to the stand, she didn't hesitate to say Priester Pettershone killed her husband. She was remarkably confident, much more than she'd been at the police lineup. The defense tried to point these discrepancies out, but it didn't do much to convince the jury. Priester seemed like a dangerous, unreliable man, and his case had gotten further than any previous suspect. Perhaps that was enough. Priester Pettershone was ruled guilty in July 1989 and sentenced to life in prison. After three long years, Palma's assassin had finally been caught, and the nation's most puzzling murder had been solved. The prime minister could rest peacefully, with his killer securely behind bars. But the relief was short-lived. Priester's lawyer appealed the decision. He pointed out the issues with the police lineup and Lisbeth Palma's testimony. In the early days of the investigation, she had no recollection of the gunman's face. But now, it seemed like she'd uncovered or manufactured some new memories. The arguments were successful. In October of 1989, the appellate court unanimously overturned Priester Pettershone's conviction. The 42-year-old emerged from prison disheveled and relieved, but the trial would continue to haunt him for the rest of his life. His face had been plastered on every newspaper in Sweden for months. Just the implication that he'd killed the prime minister was enough to make him the most hated man in the country. He'd never really cared about being liked, though, so he made a small fortune off of the false conviction. He charged thousands of dollars for newspaper interviews and even took a polygraph test on live TV. But throughout the media blitz, Priester Pettershone adamantly refused to confess. He remained in the headlines throughout the 1990s, while the police tried in vain to build up their case. Many detectives still believed he was responsible, including Hans Olvebru. They spent years trying to find a scrap of hard evidence against him and failed every time. Meanwhile, the Swedish public was left in a state of deep confusion. Priester Pettershone's conviction had offered a bit of closure and a chance to heal. When Priester was released, the national wound was ripped open again. After watching the police fumble the investigation, many Swedes decided to take the search into their own hands. Dozens of armchair detectives looked into the case, and conspiracy theories sprouted in their wake. By the late 1990s, it seemed like everyone had their own pet theory about who killed Olaf Palma. Lively debates broke out everywhere from boardrooms to dorm rooms. It has to be one of those international groups, right? Oh my god, the PKK? No, I'm not stupid. 
One of the real international groups. You know, South African spies or the KGB? I read something about arms dealers. It makes sense. Palma had just met with the Iraqi ambassador, right? And that ambassador was working with a Swedish weapons company that was secretly bribing other governments. The ambassador might have told Palma about the shady deals in that meeting. How does that lead to him dying, though? Knowing Palma, he probably said something he shouldn't. And these arms dealers aren't going to mess around. Maybe they sent an assassin. He might have been planning to meet up with them all along. If you look at the route Palma took home, it makes no sense. He must have been planning a rendezvous with someone. And the government doesn't want us to know this. But a lot of the witnesses say he was talking to the assassin before the gun came out. They knew each other. No, no, no. This isn't a spy novel, idiots. You all love to imagine armies of bad guys crawling around Stockholm. But if it was really this big mission, how come the killer hasn't been caught by now? The only group that could really get away with this is the police themselves. Oh. Think about it. We all know there are plenty of right-wing officers. How many of them hated Palma? Maybe one of them did it by accident and they closed the ranks around him. What if they mishandled the whole case on purpose to cover their tracks? I don't know. You'd think those guys would have been caught by now, too. Do you ever wonder if it was just a fluke? You know, random gunmen, wrong place, wrong time? What about aliens? <laughs> no way. But men in black, maybe. These theories gained a lot of traction in the public's imagination, but official investigators weren't very interested in them. And though Hans Olvibru was more experienced than Hans Holmier, his team ultimately fell into the same trap. They yoked themselves to one theory and refused to let it go, even as the evidence piled up against it. In some ways, Olvibru's team was even more stubborn than Holmier's. The original investigator spent a year on the PKK theory. Olvebru fixated on Christer Pettersson for more than a decade after the conviction was overturned. In the meantime, Christer went back to his old ways. He was sent to prison three separate times in the 1990s on assault and domestic violence charges. In 2004, the 57-year-old lashed out at a social services agent and was arrested once again. He was heavily intoxicated and eventually fell unconscious. He never woke up and died in September of that year. If Kreister's arrest marked the apex of the Palma investigation, his death felt like an unofficial, disappointing ending. If he knew anything about Olaf Palma's murder, he took the knowledge to his grave. After 18 years, the task force came to a dead stop. Amateur investigators rushed in to fill the vacuum and presumably traded information through message boards, email lists, and blogs. A few theories gained mainstream attention like the idea that a gang of police officers could have carried out the assassination, or that South African spies were involved. 
Others were more fringe, roping in everyone from Chilean fascists to Italian Masonic lodges and the CIA. No matter how far-fetched a theory was, someone looked into it. The armchair detectives left no stone unturned throughout the 2000s. And while many of their theories were nonsensical, it's a good thing they kept going, because at least one of them did find a viable suspect. And eventually, the official investigation followed his lead. Coming up, a minor character gets a second look. Now back to the story. Two thousand and six marked the twenty-year anniversary of Olaf Palma's murder. It was also the year Thomas Pettersson became obsessed with it. To be clear, Thomas Pettersson is not related to Christer Pettersson. In fact, he didn't have any connection to the assassination. He was a journalist who mostly wrote about business and labor issues. He probably had a passing knowledge of the case, but it doesn't appear that he ever reported on it himself. That changed in 2006. Thomas became interested in the links between the CIA and the Swedish government. The search eventually led him to the Palma Investigation Archives. The writer was stunned by the sheer amount of information available. There were reams of paper from the early days, plus countless pages about the Kreister Pettersson case. One report from 1999 totaled about a thousand pages, and that was just a rough overview. Thomas allowed himself to fall down the rabbit hole. Eventually, he started to understand why so many of his countrymen had become fixated on the case. There were so many loose ends to tie up, so many questions left to answer. Unlike the previous investigators, Thomas wasn't burdened by political pressure or the need to constantly present his findings to the public. He came with fresh eyes and kept an open mind. Soon enough, he zeroed in on a name that his predecessors had dismissed out of hand, Stieg Engström. One note before we continue, Stieg Engström was not charged or convicted of Palma's murder, but he was a person of interest. Engström was the man who insisted that he was at the crime scene, even though other witnesses didn't remember him. Here's what can be confirmed about his activities that night. Engström was a graphic designer at Scandia, an insurance company headquartered right next to the eventual murder scene. Engstrom worked late on the night of February 28, 1986, and left his office at 11.19 p.m. He walked south on the Sveavagen, right toward Lisbeth and Olaf Palma. At 11.21 p.m., Olaf was murdered. About 20 minutes later, Stieg Engstrom returned to the Scandia office severely shaken. He told security staff that the prime minister had been shot and that he'd personally helped move the body. The guards had a hard time believing his story. They noticed Engstrom didn't have any blood on his clothes. Engstrom called the police to give a statement the day after the murder. 
By that point, the officers had interviewed the bulk of the original witnesses, and a description of the killer was starting to emerge. Almost all of them said the gunman wore a dark, knee-length jacket and a hat of some kind. Many remembered the killer's gait was off. He seemed uncoordinated and clumsy. One said he was wearing glasses, and another person recalled a small bag dangling from his wrist. Stieg Engstrom matched that description, almost to a T. He was stocky and out of shape, wore steel-rimmed glasses, and almost always carried a leather pouch looped around his wrist. On the night of February 28th, he was wearing a three-quarter length overcoat and a flat cap. Engstrom didn't deny the similarities. Instead, he told the authorities the eyewitnesses had it wrong. They'd all seen him running up the stairs, not the gunman. He claimed he was showing the police where the actual killer had gone. Except none of the officers remembered a middle-aged man leading them up the stairs. In fact, none of the people at the crime scene remembered Angstrom. From this point forward, Angstrom hovered at the edges of the Palma investigation. He showed up so frequently that the press gave him a nickname, the Scandia Man. His story changed multiple times, and most investigators wrote him off as a liar who wanted media attention. But a few detectives thought differently. They saw him as a full-on suspect. And as Thomas Pettershone delved deeper into the archives, he began to wonder if they had a point. The writer probably thought about contacting Engstrom himself. He'd been more than willing to talk to the press in the late 80s and early 90s. Perhaps he'd do it again. But that would be impossible because Stieg Engstrom died in 2000. This presented an issue, both legally and journalistically. Publishing any pointed accusations would be risky, and it would be even harder to do when the subject wasn't available to comment. Thomas probably knew this affected the standard of reporting. He couldn't just publish loose connections or baseless rumors. He needed to go deeper. He spent around a decade trying to figure out Stieg Engstrom's possible motive or if he even had one. The journalist interviewed the man's former colleagues, friends, and family members, trying to understand what made him tick. By all accounts, Engstrom lived a fairly normal middle-class life. He participated in the local moderate party and tried his best to impress the higher-ups at Scandia. But that last one, the need to impress, came up a lot in Thomas's interviews, Many of Engstrom's acquaintances described him as deeply insecure and a bit of a social climber. He hung out with a group of wealthy suburban families, but never completely belonged. Many of his male friends were military officers with right-wing views. They hated Olaf Palme, and according to multiple sources, Engstrom followed suit. But could insecurity and political disagreement really lead someone to kill? It seemed like something was missing. Then, the political landscape shifted in 2017. 
a new prosecutor was appointed as head of the official investigation into Palma's death. Ironically, his name was also Kreister Pettersohn, but he was not related to the suspect from the 80s or to the journalist Thomas Pettersohn. This new leader placed heavy emphasis on the original witnesses' statements and tried to correct mistakes that had haunted the investigation for decades. And when the detectives returned to those early documents, they also became more suspicious of Stieg Engstrom. They'd caught wind of Thomas Pettersohn's ongoing inquiry and even reached out to him for help. The journalist sensed he was on the right track and everyone continued to dig. The time had come to figure out if Engstrom had the means to commit murder. In other words, he had to think about the weapon. Witnesses claimed the assassin looked comfortable holding a gun and might have had formal training. Thomas knew Engstrom served in the military in his early 20s and later found he was in a gun club too. Check and check. The next question was harder to answer. Thomas knew a 357 Magnum was used in the crime, most likely from Smith & Wesson. But according to his sources, Stieg Engstrom didn't have one of those. In fact, he didn't own any guns. But that didn't mean he didn't have access to them. Thomas Pettershone eventually learned one of Engstrom's friends was a weapon collector. The journalist pawed through the city gun licensing archives, trying to get a sense of the man's arsenal. It looked like he owned at least 37 revolvers by 1986. Five of them would work with the 357 caliber ammunition, and one of them fit the description exactly, a Smith & Wesson 357 Magnum. Thomas Pettershone did his best to find the gun itself, but learned that it had been auctioned off a few years before. There was no way to track it. After this, the investigation slowed down for a bit. But in the spring of 2018, the head of the Palma task force made an exciting announcement. His team was looking into a new lead, one that hadn't been seriously considered before. The person of interest was at the crime scene on the night of the murder. The task force claimed they would probably solve the murder, quote, in the not too distant future. But there was an important caveat. According to the prosecutor, their new person of interest might be dead. The description sounded just like Stieg Engstrom. It seemed like the official investigation was following the same path as Thomas Pettershone, with far more resources at their disposal. Now the journalist was sure that he was onto something. He wrote up a series of long-form pieces for the Swedish magazine Filter and laid out his entire argument about Stieg Engstrom there. The articles came out in May of 2018 and became immensely popular. Thomas was awarded a national prize for investigative journalism and wrote a best-selling book about his search. Stieg Engstrom's potential role in the Palma assassination became a subject of national fascination seemingly overnight. More people started to side with Thomas's theory. But two years after the Filter magazine series debuted, 
head prosecutor Christer Pedersen delivered some shocking news. He was closing the investigation. 34 years had passed and he believed they'd taken it as far as they could. The Palma task force couldn't come to a solid conclusion about who was responsible, at least not one that would hold up in court. The prosecutor wasn't going to leave the Swedish public entirely in the dark, though. He revealed that over the course of the investigation, one name came up over and over. There is one particular person, one suspect, that we somehow can't get around, as it were. And that person we're talking about is Mr. Stieg Engstrom. It's important to clarify what exactly the lead prosecutor was saying here. He was not accusing Engstrom of a crime posthumously. That would be illegal. Instead, he called Engstrom a person of interest and claimed his team would look into him more if they could. Because he was dead, the trail had gone cold, and the investigation reached an end point. In other words, the Scandia man was a strong suspect, but his guilt could never be confirmed or even fully investigated. And with that, it was over. The 34-year investigation was the longest in Swedish history, and it ended with a disappointing question mark. Many Swedes had trouble accepting the official answer. According to a small survey conducted in the summer of 2020, only about one in five Swedes believed Stieg Engström killed the prime minister. It's definitely hard to understand how someone slipped under the detectives' noses all those years. And there are still holes in the case against Angstrom, most notably his motive. Thomas Pedersen claimed that it was a combination of dislike for Palma and a need to impress his right-wing friends. He also points out that Engstrom had been drinking that night, which could have reduced his inhibitions, but those three factors don't necessarily add up to murder, especially for someone who didn't have any history of violence. And most importantly, Stieg Engstrom was never charged or convicted. As the prosecutor stated, he remains a person of interest. Yet people still circle the theory, since the case against Stieg Engstrom seems more straightforward than any other previous suspect. He was definitely in the area on the night of the murder, unlike Priester Pedershone. He closely resembled the original descriptions of the gunman, and his recollection of the crime scene didn't match up with anyone else's. The police probably should have put more effort into figuring out the source of these disparities. Instead, their leaders focused on flashier theories like the PKK and the Bayonet Killer. It's easy to condemn people like Hans Holmier in retrospect and wonder what might have happened if the investigation was run differently, but their choices made sense, at least emotionally. Olaf Palme was a political icon, one who seemed larger than life. His death was sudden and traumatic for the entire nation, 
whether they agreed with his politics or not. And because he was such an important figure, everyone assumed he died for a reason. They wanted to find meaning in it, or a larger narrative to fit it into. Murderous foreign powers made sense. A hardened criminal from Stockholm's underbelly made sense. A graphic designer from an insurance company was much harder to accept. It just seemed too random. But that's one of the worst things about death. No amount of fame or success can protect someone from every terrible coincidence. If the investigators accepted this fact at an early stage, well, perhaps we'd have real answers about Olaf Palma's assassination. Sadly, it's just too late. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode. For more information on Olaf Palma, amongst the many sources we used, we found Thomas Pettershone's magazine series, The Unlikely Killer, extremely helpful to our research. Jan Bundensen's book, Blood on the Snow, was also a key source. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Mick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Kylie Harrington, edited by Tara Wells and Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Katherine Barner, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Joshua Kern, and sound designed by Brian Golub. It stars Joe Hernandez, Nazi Tarsha, Laith Walshlager, and Rebecca Thomas. Our hosts are Wendy McKenzie and me, Carter Roy. <laughs>